I invite you to open your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, as we're slowly making our way through this epistle, Hebrews has been showing us such rich and lofty truths about our Savior Jesus Christ. Last week we saw how Jesus obeyed while he was on this earth as a man. Uh, he did not depend upon his divine nature, but rather he obeyed, being tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And so in his temptation, because he never gave in to sinful desires for even one moment, uh, he was always set apart to the Father. We found great comfort and encouragement in that. We found it comforting for two reasons. Number one, because he never gave in to temptation, and his account is now credited to me. That demonstrates, in fact, that I have that obedience, that righteousness. Jesus, of course, did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, and fulfill it he did. And secondly, we are comforted by the fact that his obedience leads us. It, it is an encouragement to us that when he obeyed as a man, he had the same resources we do, namely the Spirit and the Word, to battle with temptation. And so we've been seeing wonderful portraits of Christ so far in this letter. Uh, wonderful examples of elements of his deity and uh, his work on the cross for us. And what the author is going to do now is he's going to take all that he's been saying about Christ and he's going to begin to make it very personal. He's going to begin to apply it to each and every hearer and essentially ask you, what is it that you are doing with this Christ who I've been exalting? If you've ever been to a timeshare presentation, not that I would recommend it, I only did it once, but you get to hear for an hour or an hour and a half all of the benefits to your life if you simply sign up for a timeshare. See, it's not just like going and renting a hotel. You actually kind of own something in a weird sort of way. And yet, you're not tied down like you would with a normal property because you could trade your timeshare and stay somewhere else. You kind of have the best of both worlds. And you hear about all of the long-term financial benefits of securing a timeshare at today's price before it goes up. And in fact, if you make a decision that day, you could probably get it for a steal for half of the normal cost. And then you get to the end, and what happens? You get handed the clipboard with the line to sign on, and it's the decision point on, on where do you stand with all of the information that you just heard? Are you in or are you out? You've heard the pitch. What's your response? And so the format of this letter is somewhat similar in that over and over the pattern is going to be to exalt the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and then to say, hey, personally, who is Christ to you? You've heard all of these wonderful benefits concerning Christ. Are you a possessor of those benefits through him? Where are you at? Where are you at personally? And so today's message begins a section in the letter where it begins to turn and it's going to probe very personally into your own relationship with Jesus Christ. This focus is not on the doctrines concerning Christ that we've been looking at, but specifically, how do you relate to Jesus? Now this letter is written to people who are, for the most part, saved. This is written to a church. It's written to believers. And so the author is, is beginning to draw this line, and this is really the first significant warning passage, although we saw a little bit in the beginning of chapter 2, but 
this warning passage is going to extend for many verses. And whenever we encounter a warning passage in Hebrews, we get a little concerned about how to take it. Is this saying that you can somehow gain salvation and be united to Christ and then lose your salvation? Is this just a, a warning to unbelievers who are in the church that they need to feel threatened and turn to Christ? I believe the best way to understand the warning passages in Hebrews is, is that they are meant to be an encouragement to God's people to persevere in the faith. In other words, when you hear these warning passages, um, it's not like someone threatening to throw you over Niagara Falls as if it's a threat that causes you to run away from them. Rather, it's someone that's saying, hey, you're in a boat right now. If you don't hang on tight, you're going to get carried away down the river and you're going to go over the edge of the, the waterfall. So keep hanging on here to Christ. These are meant to be an encouragement, even the very means by which you would persevere in the faith. God has, of course, ordained the end of your salvation. If, in fact, he saved you, he will complete the work that he has begun. One of the ways that he does that is by causing you to turn back to Christ over and over and over. And this warning is even a means of that. See, what we're going to see today is that what separates humanity is not the churched and the unchurched. It's not conservative and liberal. It's not religious and non-religious. It's not even good people and bad people. It's those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. And so the question is, today, really presented by this text, is Jesus Christ your life? As Paul would say in Colossians 3, 4. If you do or identify the core of what drives you in your life, what defines you, what's most notable or significant about you, is it first and foremost that you are in Christ? Is that the centrifuge and the orientation from which every other decision and component of who you are ultimately drives back to you? The writer of Hebrews begins in chapter 3, verse 1, and he says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus. The apostle and the high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses as much more glory as the builder of a house has much more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. Outline this morning for this passage is, is clinging to the Jesus whom we confess. And this passage really breaks down into to three points very naturally. The first verse contains a command to follow, the second verse down through the first part of 6 is a connection to make. And then finally, the last part of verse 6 is a condition to hear. This is all about orienting you as a believer back to Christ. The theme of this passage is you are to give careful consideration to Jesus who is faithful over God's house. And interestingly enough here, we find it in connection to, in relationship to, of all people, Moses. We find Jesus in relation to Moses. And so we're going to get into this interesting connection here. But the beginning of comprehending and clinging to this Jesus whom we confess is in verse 1, a command to follow. 
When you read, therefore, therefore is actually connecting back to verses 14 through 18. So if you look back at verse 14, it begins, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And so 14 through 18 was talking about how God, the second person of the Trinity, became a man. He took on flesh so that he could abolish death, he could atone for sins, and he could uh, aid strugglers. And so this begins now in the very same way. And essentially is saying because Jesus, the self-sacrificing high priest, came to save you, you must now consider him. It's the only command in this entire paragraph. It's to consider Jesus Christ means to to give careful consideration to, to consider closely. You could say to, to understand completely or to fix your thoughts upon, to think carefully about Christ. Now this command can only be obeyed if you are in Christ. He's not merely talking about appreciate knowledge of Jesus. Because look who he addresses. He says, therefore, holy brothers... Unless you're a Pentecostal background, you probably don't call people holy brother. Hey, holy brother, how are you today? Uh, It's a pretty good designation. It's right here in Scripture. But the idea is that you've been set apart in Christ. You've been set apart now as, as a child of God through the work of Christ. And so if you are a brother, that's not just a brother of one another, but the brother of Jesus or the sister of Jesus. So if you're a little brother or a little sister of Jesus, you've been set apart in him and you've been called by Christ. The heavenly calling is the calling that comes from heaven, from the Lord himself, and it's the calling that calls you to heaven. And so when you come to this verse, if you're really honest, you just stop and wonder for a second. Here's the thought that I cannot get over with this passage. If Jesus is so great, and he is, how is it that we are so needful of the reminder to consider him. If Jesus is so great, and he is, why do we need to be reminded to consider him? My friends, it is because we live in the flesh, and we only see Christ by faith, and oftentimes our eyes grow dim concerning the Savior. See, this author is writing, and when he writes a a warning, which is going to come here at the beginning of verse 6 and and on down through the rest of the chapter into to four is because he cares so much about the souls of those to whom he is writing and he wants to see them persevere in the faith. And so this is a gracious command. He's saying you need to make sure that you understand Jesus. You need to spend time getting to know Jesus. And all of the things that you might be doing for God and all of the activities that you might be involved in, service and work and worship and family life, you're to consider Jesus in this way. You're to love Jesus and learn from Jesus and praise Jesus and obey Jesus and all of this flows out of considering him. See, if you are in Christ, then you will desire to consider him, and yet sometimes you don't. And the writer is saying here, if you have any spiritual need, you solve that need by first going back and and considering the Lord himself. 
This was what Peter had written to the church in 1 Peter 1 where he said, though you have not seen him, that is Christ, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, if you're in Christ, then you automatically have an affinity for your older brother. You automatically desire to spend time with him. You desire to know him. And the more that you know him, the more you understand him. And the more that you understand him, the more that you love him. And the more that you love him, the more you want to know him more. Here the writer is saying that you are to know Jesus Christ in this way. You're to ponder him. You're to ponder his work and to believe in his work and thereby actually grow in your relationship to him. Here the writer says that it is Jesus and then he designates him as the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, apostle is not a common designation for Jesus. When you read the New Testament, most commonly when you read apostle, it's speaking of the twelve. Every once in a while you find it used somewhere else, like when the 70 are sent out in Luke 10 and they're called apostles. But this is the only time that Jesus in the New Testament is called an apostle. Apostle was someone who was sent on behalf of another. That one who was sent was given the authority of the sender. That apostle was given a message from the sender and sent on a mission to accomplish a work on behalf of the one doing the sending. So in what sense was Jesus an apostle? Well, he was God's final revelation as we saw in chapter 1 verse 2. He came and revealed the Father, a message from heaven. And he proclaims God's name to the congregation in chapter 2 verse 12. And if we're tempted to miss the significance that it was God the Father who sent forth Jesus Christ on this earthly mission, just listen for a moment to me how emphasized this role of Jesus as apostle is in the New Testament. John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world. There's this mission from God the Father. John 3, 34, for whom God has sent utters the words of God. John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. John 5, 23, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. John 5, 24, him who sent me. John 5, 30, I have come not to seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 5, 36, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. In case you needed to hear it again, he says in the very next verse, you do not have this word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent, which is Jesus. John 6, 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John 6, 44, no one can come to the Father unless... Guess who sent me? The Father. John 6, 57, big surprise, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. John 7, 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. 
Jesus in the temple in John chapter 7 says, He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from, and he sent me. And later, John 7, 33, I'll be with you a little longer than I'm going to him who sent me. John 8, 16, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. John 8, 18, I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. John 8, 26, I have much to say, and you have much to judge, but he who sent me is true. John 8, 29, he who sent me is with me. John 8, 42, I am not here of my own accord, but he sent me. John 10, 36, do you save him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world? Jesus said, you need to believe in me because it is the Father who sent me. John eleven forty two. 42, speaking in the third person in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. My friends, this is the apostolic testimony, that Jesus came to earth, not just merely because it was his own idea and his own volition, but rather he was sent by the Father, the first member of the Trinity, to accomplish the work of redemption that he had planned for him. 1 John 4.14, we've seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son, why? To be the Savior of the world. See, Jesus came to earth on a very specific mission. He came with a very specific mission sent by the Father to be the Savior of the world. And in fact, what motivated God was his love for us. Oftentimes we think that we only have the love of God because of what Christ has done in his atoning work on the cross. But it was actually love that motivated the Father to send the Son, according to 1 John chapter 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. My friends, whatever you think of when you think of the earthly mission of Jesus Christ, you understand that he came not to do his own will, but the will of his Father in heaven. He came on a mission where he was sent by his Father. And in perfect submission, he came, and he came to bring salvation to you. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing to believers who are tempted to begin to shrink back from Christ. I was trying to picture of what it would have been like if you were in the context of the Hebrews. There, there would have been probably people that you had known that were facing pressure for Christ and then they'd fallen away. So just make it real. Next week I get up and I say, hey guys, listen, um, it's been a good ride here at the church. I wish you all well in whatever your endeavors are. Not only am I going to leave the church and go back into my business career, but I'm actually going to leave Christ altogether. I don't mean any offense toward you. There's just some things that I've been thinking about and I don't really believe it anymore. I don't really buy into it. I'm going to go back to my old way of living. And not only does that happen, but the next week, uh, a couple others peel off. Not just leaving this church to go to another church, but, but leaving the faith, abandoning Christ. And at the same time, it's in the context where, as those believers were, to 
To identify with Christ might mean your livelihood and personal safety, and to, to abandon Christ meant personal safety. You understand the temptation in the heart? <laughs> when you're starting to feel as though maybe you're a little shaky in that profession that you made, there's things that are starting to disrupt your confidence in Christ. And not only that, but as you look out on the world around you, it's intimidating to hang on to him. And so the writer says, because he came as your high priest and he accomplished salvation, you need to, in your weakness, consider him. You need to consider his person and his, his work. Christ is not to be an afterthought or an appendage. He is our life as a Christian. My friends, this is the core issue. It doesn't really matter whether you're a member at Cornerstone Bible Church. It doesn't really matter whether you were raised in a Christian home. It doesn't matter whether your spouse is a believer. It doesn't matter whether you read your Bible every day and you say certain prayers. It doesn't matter whether you have a, a list of morality that somehow keeps you set apart in your mind from others. The question is, how do you relate to Jesus? Jesus was sent from God. He was the apostle and high priest of our confession. That is what we believe. And you know, it's possible to be very close to Christ in Christianity and not actually possess Christ. This week in preparation for this message, I was reflecting back on an eminent theologian whose writing I benefited from tremendously uh, he's been able to crystallize various truths about Christ, our blessed hope, and eschatology as a foremost scholar in ways that uh, really no one had been able to do before him. And then I read his biography. And I read about how he destroyed his marriage and was unfaithful to his wife habitually for years. And he did not love his children, and he was addicted and enslaved to the praise of men and undone when he didn't receive it, and ended his life staggering around parking lots and drunkenness. And here he is writing lofty truths about Christ that, that I don't even have the, the hardwiring to be able to ever attain to. His theology far excelled mine. His exegesis was beyond that. Anyone in the room, we couldn't hold a candle to that guy. And yet, for as close as he was to Christ, he did not consider Jesus in the way that the writer here is talking about. To consider him in his person and in his work. The issue, of course, was not that he was a sinner. All of us are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. But rather a relationship to Jesus Christ that isn't merely being around him, but actually possessing him by faith. And so when you are weak, you are to consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And the writer begins to, to deal with a very specific connection between Christ and the old covenant. And so he has a connection here for us that he wants us to make beginning in verse 2, and this is a connection to Moses. Now this is kind of funny for us uh, because this is probably not something that you immediately relate to in your Christian experience. I can think of all the counseling calls I've received so far as a pastor. I've yet to receive this one. Pastor, listen, um, I'm really struggling 
it's kind of embarrassing to talk about. Can we, can we meet somewhere private? I, I'm struggling. And, and then we meet and there's a 20-minute a kind of hem-hawing around to finally bring out this dark secret sin. And it's, man, I've just been so attracted to the ministry of Moses lately and I think I'm going to leave Christ for Moses. I haven't had that conversation yet. Occasionally you might know someone that gets into a weird sect that they want to go back into observing the cultic practices of Judaism. But generally speaking, this isn't a major temptation for us here in the New Covenant in the West that we're going to suddenly draw back into thinking that we will achieve a relationship with God through Moses. But I want you to see that we're actually not so far off from what these hearers were experiencing. Well, first let's just understand what is going on in the connection. Second part of, or excuse me, verse 2 says, um, Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. So there's been a comparison drawn here. The comparison is that Moses was faithful in God's house, and now Jesus is faithful in God's house. How is it that Moses was faithful? Well, Moses, if you remember, was commissioned by God in Exodus chapter 3, and then he was sent back to Egypt to deliver God's people from slavery under bondage to Pharaoh. And he served somewhat faithfully. Now, if you look at Moses, even on his best day, he was always a man. He was a mere mortal. In fact, he didn't get into the promised land because of his sin. But he was faithful in that he obeyed God, and he actually did deliver God's people. It was through his hand from Egypt. And Moses was a hero in Israel. It's kind of hard for us to get our minds around because we don't have a national hero in that way. It'd be kind of like if you took a military hero of ours and maybe George Washington and several others and you packaged them in one, but there was also a religious connotation. So when you thought back to Moses, he was uh, kind of the whole package deal of the hero for God's people. The founding of the nation certainly came through the promise to Abraham, but ultimately it was established through Moses and his ministry. And so the connection here is not one that denigrates Moses. Rather, it's, it's connecting the ministry of Moses to the ministry of Christ. Just as Moses was faithful to what God had called him to do, Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him. That's the Father. And for this reason, verse 3, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has much more honor than the house itself. Think about what it is that's being talked about here. The, the writer's beginning to draw a comparison now between Moses and Christ. This was a common device that would take place, a kind of a rhetorical practice among emperors in Rome. And so what you would do is um, you would take the, the emperor and, and you would essentially uh, flatter the emperor by, by highlighting how much better this emperor was than every emperor who'd ever gone before that emperor. You'd compare the upbringing and, and say, your upbringing is so much better than everyone's upbringing who's gone before you. And your education is better than the education of any who've gone before you. And your reign is more glorious and your military exploits are even better. And then eventually you've praised this emperor so greatly that all the others kind of fade into the background. Think of a biblical example of this. This happened with Saul and David. 
right? Saul comes back from battle and he hears the singing. All the women come out to sing the song and Saul's standing there and what are they saying? Saul has slain his thousands, but, uh-oh, that's a bad contrast. David has actually slain his tens of thousands, right? And what happened? Saul immediately rejoiced in David's success. No, immediately stirred up a, a resentment in his heart because the comparison was that although Saul had slain thousands and that was a good thing, David had slain ten thousands. And so what the writer's doing here is he's not denigrating Moses in any way or Moses' ministry among God's people, but he's saying if you were to take Moses and then compare Jesus and Moses, Jesus is worthy of much more glory than Moses. What's the comparison? Well, it's the glory that the builder of a house gets compared to the house itself. So you think about this, you go into a home and you say, wow, I, I really like that cabinet color. What color is that? That's nice. Or maybe you say, oh, these hand-scraped wood floors, those are, those are excellent, those are gorgeous. But what do you never hear? Wait, is this a... Is this a D.R. Horton home? Was this home built by D.R. Horton? Is this a DeVosta home? We typically think more about the things going on in the house than the person that built the home. So we're not really, we're not really attached in that way. But what they're picturing here is, is the one that actually built the house is the one that gets the credit for it. So rather than merely just admiring all the things within the home, it's actually the person that came up with the design from the beginning the architect and the builder of the home. And so Jesus was different in his relationship to the home. What is the home? Well, the home and the house is God's people. And so Moses, verse 5, was faithful in all God's house as a servant. So that means that if you were to picture in a house then that is built by someone, God is the builder who's built the house. Uh, that's his redemptive plan for his people. Moses comes into the house and he's a servant. If you're part of the feudal system in England, you'd understand that, that it actually mattered to some degree uh, the status of the house that you were a servant in. Right? So it'd be better to be a servant in a more prominent house than to be a servant in a less prominent house. You'd have more honor and glory to serve in someone of greater prominence and significance. And at the end of the day, you're still just a servant. And so Moses was merely serving in the home that God built. That means that when he was leading God's people, when he was uh, acting as a mediator of the old covenant, all of that work was done merely as a servant in the house of God's people. But Jesus, Jesus is different. Because verse 6 says, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. See, the son would have always had different privileges than the servant. The son would actually have the rights to the property. The son would be the one who would inherit the home. The son would be sharing in the ownership of the property. And so when you think about Moses coming in as a servant of God's people, he served and yet he was simply one of God's people. Jesus, when he came and served us as our people, is now the head. He is, in fact, the one who is the head over his church. He is the one who is building his church. 
And so the writer's saying there's no conflict between these ministries, but Moses and Jesus are not peers on an equal playing field. Moses is the servant, Jesus is the son. And yet if you were to look at this, it says that Moses, the end of verse 5, came to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So Moses isn't in trouble for being a servant. In fact, he was carrying out the plan that God had, and the plan for Moses as a servant was to demonstrate and testify that Christ was going to come as the ultimate son and the builder of the house. How does this work? Well, Moses, think about his role in relationship. He wasn't necessarily a priest in the formal sense. The priestly line came through Aaron. And as we'll see, Christ is out of the stock of Melchizedek. And yet in one sense, when Moses went and pled with the Lord to relent in his anger and fury against Israel, what was he doing? He was performing a priestly function. And so he was sent by God. He was an apostle that went back to Pharaoh and testified in that way to Pharaoh of God's greatness and then delivered God's people out of Egypt as their deliverer. Moses provided bread from heaven, which was actually given from God himself, all pointing ahead to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Moses' message spoke of things to come. And so Moses' work was was to further the house-building project that Jesus would come and complete. Moses then, as a witness, as a testimony, wasn't merely witnessing and testifying to himself, but the incomparable greatness of Christ who was coming. And so why did these saints need to hear this message? It's because they'd begun to think, they'd begun to be tempted... And the pressure and the exclusive trust in Christ himself. That maybe they could, they could in the quest for safety, grab the religious practices of the Old Testament and find safety and security in that. And what the author is saying here is that as great as Moses was, Moses was always pointing to something greater, namely the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in him whom we have salvation. The idea that you could take the very best guy in the Old Testament, the guy through whom the original Old Covenant relationship came, he was the best way to relate to God from the time that covenant came until Christ, and yet now that Christ is here, you relate to God through a new covenant enacted by a new mediator, namely Christ himself. As Hughes puts it, if we desire access to the Father who is king of all, Who would you rather trust in? A servant as mediator or the king's son? If Moses could have sufficed you for righteousness and salvation, on so great as Jesus would never have been sent to you, he surpasses Moses in glory and in merit. My friends, you are not likely to go back to the old covenant as a way of establishing your relationship with God. But if you're trusting in anything other than the finished work of Christ on your behalf, you're in danger of the same thing that these saints were. 
See, they were beginning to think that, that somehow in the costliness of Christ, there was a safer path, and their heart was beginning to be tempted to shrink back from that confession. And so it is with that in mind that the author says at the end of verse 6, we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. If indeed. This is a conditional statement. The way that it functions is that it modifies the main statement. So the main statement is that we are in fact his house and then that is qualified by the condition if indeed we hold fast our confidence. You can say it this way, who are the ones who are in his house? The ones who hold fast, the ones who cling. My friends, this teaching is in perfect harmony with all of the doctrines of salvation recovered by the church in the Protestant Reformation. You don't save yourself by keeping yourself in God's love. But that's not what the author is addressing here. Too often we take a verse like this and we quickly want to pull it out and stick it back into our systematic theology so that we can understand it in light of that. But we can miss the import of what's being conveyed. See, these are people who have professed love for Christ and yet they're finding within themselves, man, there's a part of me that it doesn't really believe and trust him. There's a part of me that doesn't really cling to him. There's a part of me that is absorbed with other things rather than giving careful consideration to him. There's those who believed in Christ that are now finding a measure of unbelief resident in their hearts as we all know. And so to those, the author is saying, you never have every confidence that you belong to Christ if in Christ you remain. See, it's an encouragement to persevere. It's not a threat. Rather, it's an appropriate warning, right in line with what Jesus said in John 8, 31, where Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you remain in my word. F.F. Bruce says, the saints are the people who persevere to the end. And continuance in the Christian life is the test of that reality. See, disciples abide. Disciples remain. What does that mean? It means that as I stand before you today, I have assurance that I'm in Christ. I believe that I've been bought with his precious blood. I've been adopted into his family. But what happens if, if 10 years from now I come into the pulpit and I have the, the little speech that I gave at the beginning and I turn my back on Christ and I walk away? That means that I have no benefits of Christ. I'm not a part of the house. The text says the, the ones who are part of the house that God is building, namely his people, Going back from the Old Testament, Israel united to the church now in the new covenant, God's people for all of redemptive history, that house is going to be those who maintain their confidence to the end. And look at the wording. He says that it's those who hold fast their confidence and their boasting in their hope. Very often we underestimate the danger of the quest for safety. In fact, if you were to, to look right now, the, the church at large is, is hemorrhaging. Large numbers of professing believers leaving the faith year after year after year. What's happening? Well, these are people who've attached themselves to Christianity and, and not specifically to Jesus Christ. They have a form of worship on the outside and yet they're lacking the very substance and when you read those words there, this idea of, of boasting and our hope would be this. 
people who are proud to be called Christians. There's a proud confidence in their hope. They're not closet Christians. They're not secret Christians. They're not chameleon Christians that are Christians when it's not costly and not Christians when it is. See, the lie is that sometimes I can still be a Christian and just drop the parts of Christ that I don't like. I will take the ones that suit me and I will leave the others behind. Particularly the the ones that are not in season or favorable. And so whatever it was that these believers were going through as they experienced the seizure of their property, there was something about the identification with Christ that was rubbing the empire the wrong way and that was what was causing them to shrink back. And so here the writer is not saying merely that you secretly hang on to Christ, but rather that you hold fast our confidence and our boasting. Said in other ways, the greatest pride and joy of your life that you know Jesus. Is the greatest pride and joy of your life that you know Christ? You can say Christ knows me that he is my apostle and the high priest of my confession. My friends, this passage is call to unreserved trust in Jesus. And when I lack trust in Jesus, when I lack confidence, when you lack confidence, you're to go back and you're to consider him. And inevitably, what the writer is going to begin to develop is that when we experience a cloudy vision of Christ that we all do, there's undealt with sin and unbelief in our hearts. It's amazing the connection even that Jesus makes when he's talking to the disciples in John's gospel. He says, those who abide in my commandments, I will reveal myself to. And so what the writer's going to begin to do is say, I'm not just calling you now to look to Christ as your confession, but I'm going to help you identify the unbelief that lurks in your hearts that causes you to want to shrink back from him. And so we're going to get shepherded and we're going to get helped and how it is that we consider the apostle and the great high priest of our confession. Will you pray with me? Lord in heaven, thank you for the mercy that you have shown us. It's hard for us to imagine receiving something that we didn't earn. Uh, Even beyond that, Lord, that we uh, are never worthy of. Uh, Not even on our best day are we worthy of what you've given us in Christ and yet you offer it so freely. Father, I pray that you would help us to uh, consider Jesus. No doubt, we lack in so many ways doing that. And yet, Lord, it is, it is for our own benefit. Lord, it was John Owen that said that, that believers oftentimes neglect such mercies for their soul. Lord, such peace for their anxieties, such help in their time of need. Uh, simply because of a failure to go back and consider Jesus. So I pray that you would refresh us in this truth, that you would uh, refresh us in our pursuit of you and the knowledge of you, not uh, simply, Lord, as a theological exercise, but rather as the very person who has saved us, whom we love. Uh, Lord, that we would be able to say with, with those saints that Peter wrote to, although we do not see him, we love him. And we wait eagerly for his return. In Christ's name we pray, amen.